0: Amen. as you grab a seat, uh, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter twenty-four. We are—I know—last week I said we were going to split chapter twenty-four into two weeks. Um, I'm sorry, I lied. We're going to do it all in one week today. We're going to finish up Joshua today. Um, there just wasn't a, a great—a great spot to split it uh, when I was when I was walking through it this week. Uh, So we're going to finish up Joshua today, and then the plan is next week we will jump into the gospel according to Matthew and begin to walk through that. So uh, Joshua chapter 24 today, wrapping up our walk through Joshua, and then next week you kind of know what direction we are heading. Um, But today as we're we're finishing up Joshua, uh, what we're going to find in this passage is that uh, Joshua is going to have his final interaction with the people of Israel. So throughout the book of Joshua, Joshua has been the successor to Moses. He's the one who has led the people of Israel into the land that God had promised all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. that, That this land would be for Abraham's offspring. Uh, and and the people are now at a place of rest. While well, if you turn into Judges chapter one, you're going to see that there's there's still a little bit left to do in the land, but on the on the grand scale of things. God has delivered his people into a place of rest where they have received the inheritance that God has promised to them. And now Joshua is meeting with all of the people, the heads of the people, and he's bringing them to a decision point on what it is to continue to walk with the Lord in the future. Uh, and so what were you... We, what we find in Joshua 24 as we walk through it is maybe uh, one of the passages of the Old Testament that, that you are most likely to like have hanging over your fireplace, right? And uh, we'll talk about that as soon as we read it. You're going, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about now. Um, and, and we're gonna see why, why is this uh, why is this there, and then why is it this abiding, continuing uh, thing that is is continuing to instruct us in our faith in Christ now uh, in, the, in the 21st century as New Testament followers of Jesus. Uh, so if you will, look with me at Joshua chapter 24. Uh, if you want to follow along, it's on the screen for you. Or if you want to read along with me, Joshua chapter 24. We're going to uh, look at verses 1 through 33, and then again, just walk through it. So Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 1. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, And summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea, And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove, us, uh, drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these, books, uh, these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So in verse 1, we we, we see the, the context is being laid out for us for the chapter that... Joshua gathers all the tribes of Israel to himself at Shechem. Uh, and if you if you were to go back and look, and I'm not going to go back and read each part of these. You can jot them down if you want to go back and look at them. But in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, when the people of Israel came across the Jordan, after they had defeated Jericho and after they had defeated Ai, they renewed the covenant at, at a place called Shechem. And, and it was in between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and half the people stood in front of one mountain and the other half stood in front of the other mountain. And the law was read to them, and this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 11, where Moses had commanded them, when you go into the land, this is what you're going to do. So they reread the law, and they read all of the curses and all of the blessings, and the people of Israel said, we are in agreement with these things. Right And stepping into, now that we're in the land, we want to continue to walk in this covenant that the Lord has made with us. So it's interesting that now on the tail end of Joshua's life, they're back at Shechem, and Joshua is once again laying down the covenant before the people of Israel, saying, this is who the Lord is, and this is the response that's required of you. What's interesting, and I want to take a really quick rabbit trail off of this, You notice in verse 1, it says that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. The next phrase is a little bit interesting. It says, and they presented themselves before God. So Joshua calls them to himself, but it is not Joshua that the people are presenting themselves to. Now, the, the really quick rabbit trail I just want to chase real briefly is this question, when the people of God gather corporately, who are they gathered before? When we gather together corporately as the body of Christ, why do we gather? Do we gather because this is our social time, this is the, we want to see our people Do we gather so that we can enjoy or not enjoy the music depending on the Sunday? Do we gather so that we can enjoy or not enjoy the sermon that Sunday? Why do we gather? Or do we meet together with expectation that the Lord will speak to us through his word when we worship him in spirit and in truth? could Could I maybe suggest that a lot of the times where we go sideways as the people of God in Christ is that we begin to expect things from people rather than coming and gathering with an expectation of what the Lord will do in our midst. That we come with unreasonable expectations of what the person sitting next to us will provide for us when we gather together before the Lord. That we come with unreasonable expectations of what someone else will do or provide for us. And it's just kind of an interesting thing. So Joshua gathers them together to, to, to meet with them. He's going to lay out the word of the Lord for them, but it's a really interesting thing that it says, and they presented themselves before the Lord. It, it, and it's such a subtle thing that we could miss in our, every time we come to gather together. Like, if, if we are expecting, well, let me take a step back. I believe our expectations will change the way that we gather for worship. On Saturday night, when you're getting everybody ready for bed in your family, and you're getting ready to lay your head on your pillow, what are your thoughts about what you will do the following morning when you gather for worship? When your family is gathering, or you are individually preparing for service on a Sunday morning, what is guiding your thoughts of what you will expect to happen when you get here? And I'm not talking about like just like well, expecting crazy, uh, wild things to take place, but. Who are we expecting to gather before, and to whose honor and glory are we prepared to submit ourselves? And it's such a subtle thing, because if we miss this, you, you very likely walk out the door saying, like, the church was not great today. Church didn't give me what I needed today. And 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 to be fair we'll we'll talk about the Sunday service afterwards as 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 the volunteers that take place in then we'll go what can we do better what 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 maybe could we have done differently but all of that to the aim of let's not screw up the meeting together before the lord not not how did we entertain you this morning not how did we meet the 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 various expectations that everybody had of everyone else in the room but rather, did we usher people to a place where they are ready to assemble before the Lord as his people, consecrated for his purposes? So just is a little challenge. Maybe if you go, man, he, he just messed up my Saturday and Sunday morning routine. Going into next week, just give us a little bit of thought as you get ready to talk about what happened today. If you talk about it around the table at lunch and you talk about what had taken place. Is the priority of what is weighted in your conversations about your expectations that were not met by another individual or by something that took place in the logistics of just gathering in the same place? Or are you discussing, this is what we ought to do in response to the word of the Lord? And again, I'm not saying give me a blank slate to just do whatever and then go, well, it's really not about him spouting heresy. If I spout heresy, call it. But what I am saying is, what is our primary purpose in gathering together as God's people? For the people of Israel right here, they're gathering, presenting themselves before the Lord, and Joshua is about to lay out for them. And the first, uh, first that we're going to break this into three sections. In the first section, in verses 2 through 13, it's kind of an interesting thing. He, he recounts the people's history to them. So he revisits the history of Israel with the people in verses 2 through 13. He reminds them why they are where they are at Shechem right now on this day. And it starts with the before you were a people. Long ago, right, in verse 2. Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. That's kind of interesting. If you think about Abraham, you don't usually think about him worshiping something other than the Lord. You just just think of him worshiping the Lord where he was at and God calling him, and he responds in obedience. But in in Joshua's history of the people, and then if you go into Stephen's history of the people in Acts chapter uh, 7, he tells the same thing. Before the Lord called Abraham, Abraham and his family did not serve the Lord. They were Far off. They were far removed. The only reason that Abraham goes and claims the promise that God gives to him is because he responds in faith to the word that the Lord speaks to him. And what is interesting as you walk through verses 2 through 13 is, it's a history of the people of Israel, but what it really is is God's history among the people of Israel. If you if you just walk through this with me really quickly, at least I counted 22 times. 22 times in these 13 verses where God places the emphasis on the, on the history of the people of Israel, on what God has done for them. if We just walk through these. Starting in verse 3, he says, I took Abraham, I led him. I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. You go into verse 4. I gave Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And then I gave Esau the place where he lived. You keep going into verse 5. I sent Moses. I plagued Egypt with what I did. I brought you out. Verse 6. I brought you out of Egypt. Verse 7. I put darkness between you and the Egyptians. I made the sea come and cover them. All of these things that I did in Egypt, verse seven or verse eight, I brought you, and then I gave them over to your hand. I destroyed them. Verse ten, I didn't listen to Balaam, I delivered you. Verse eleven, I gave you. Verse twelve, I sent the hornet before you. Verse thirteen, I gave you the land. It would be really hard for Joshua and the people of Israel to walk away from this going like, we are rock stars. We did this. So much so that, I mean, God even tells him, it wasn't your sword or your bow that did this awesome thing. I did this. And then he even says, the land, in verse 13, I gave you a land on which you hadn't labored and cities that you hadn't built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. In the way that the Lord lays out the history of the people of Israel, it's impossible for them to come away with anything other than the recognition that God has faithfully, from the beginning until now, God has faithfully taken care of them. He starts from Abraham and he brings it to today. And everywhere in between, the Lord has been good and the Lord has been faithful. Now, before we move on to the the second part of what Joshua does in this, then one of the questions that we should rightly ask at this place is, is did God's faithfulness stop towards people in verse 13? Or did God's faithfulness in history continue to roll? Has God continued to faithfully act on behalf of his people after this event? Now, and it uh, carries an extra special thing for you and for me because we would ask the question, how has God been faithful to me? How has God been faithful to you? Has he been? That would be a, a really good question to, to, to stop and think about. If, if we were in the same period of time and we gathered ourselves today and we said, let me tell you the story of who you are and what God has done for you, we would also probably start way back before we were a people. We go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created people, and he created them to know him and to walk with him. This is what God did, and God provided everything good for them. And then those first people, in a way that you and I totally wouldn't do, right? They decided to follow their own thing rather than to listen to the Lord and what he would have them to do. And they pursued their own direction. And what we would expect, if we just relayed the history of people right there, what we would expect is right there, God's relationship and pursuit of people stopped. Because people said, we don't want you, and God says, okay. But what Scripture tells us is that is not at all what God's approach to people is. In fact, because here in Joshua, God is crafting a people for himself after the sin of Adam and Eve. So that down the road through this people, through the people of Israel, God would reveal His eternal Son who would come and take on flesh through this people. God is going to use this people, this stubborn people, the people of Israel, who at this moment we've talked about this, in Joshua, they are at their height of obedience. Joshua looks really good on the people of Israel, and the rest of the Old Testament does not look really good when the old, like, when you look back on it, and you go, "Ooh, they, they screwed up a lot. They did what? And yet what we see is God's faithful activity through this people to bring Jesus into the picture. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who is promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God promised Adam and Eve right after they had sinned. He says, I'm going to give you an offspring who will crush the head of this snake even though he's going to bite his heel. Looking all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, God is saying there is a rescuer who is coming. And the Old, Old Testament, if we wanted to sum it up this way, the whole Old Testament is going, is this person it? Ah, No, they're kind of a disappointment. Is this person it? Oh, crud, he's a murderer and a rapist. Gosh, ah, he was so close. Oh, this guy was a liar. Oh, this guy. And in every case, you go... How is God going to bring about the right person that's going to fix all of us? And yet, in the whole thing, you see this thread that God is faithfully weaving out. He's bringing Jesus, the one who can faithfully, obediently serve the Lord in a way that you and I can't. And who is obedient to every word of the Father. And this Jesus who took on flesh, who, who, who didn't have to. Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself and took on flesh to dwell among us. And then he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Why? Because you and I and every other person on this planet, because of our sin, we deserved eternal separation from that holy God. But Jesus, because of his great love for us, took on flesh, dwelt among us, and died on the cross for the taking on our sin and our shame on himself. Dying the death that you and I deserve to die for our sin took it all on himself, was buried in a sinner's grave, left in the tomb and on the third day rose to life, defeating sin and death forever, ascending to the right hand of the Father where he will return one day in glory and power to receive all those who have trusted in his name. Now, of all of that, let me ask you a question. And that's just a a smidge of who Jesus is. How much of that can you and I take credit for? In the same way that Joshua is, relays to the people of Israel, this is what God did. I, 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 I. You didn't do. I, I, I. You didn't do. I, I did. And for everyone who receives Jesus and trusts in him by faith, how much of his work do we take credit for? In reality, if we were to lay out lay out our lives before him, if he were to look at me, if, if he were to address me right now, he'd be like, You 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 didn't pay for your own sin. You didn't faithfully provide breath in your lungs every day. You didn't cause brain waves to be peeking through your brain today when you woke up. You didn't cause that car to move rather than to hit you like that wasn't you. You didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. And on that day, if we if we were to die, and Hebrews tells us it is pointed for every person to die and then stand before the Lord. On that day, which of us can say, "Well, Lord, this is all the things that I did." Versus we would say, "Here's the good news. Let me tell you about what you did." Let me tell you my hope. My hope is that I'm clinging desperately to what you have done. Because what I have done and what you have done is actually driving the wedge of separation between us and God. But what God has done is cultivated faithfulness towards people who didn't deserve it. And just like Abraham, who had served other gods, apart from Jesus, you and I, we're serving something. We were worshiping something or someone, or like, we're not neutral. We like to think of ourselves as neutral, just free agents, like I'm I'm not really serving anybody. I'm just here. But the reality is, is that you and I we're made to worship. And this is where the, the heart of then what 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 God calls the people of Israel, he calls them to respond, but he calls them to serve. In this next section in verses 14 through 15, but really 14 through the end of the chapter. There's a new word. So, so the first part is 22 times the Lord refers to what He has done, and then in the next section, the next two sections, at least 16 times, the word "serve" is used. One time it's used of Abraham serving other gods, which lays us leaves us with this it lays the expectation of what "serve" means as we move forward through the chapter. That serve is not just a, a, a waiter's job at the restaurant to bring a plate of things to somebody, but it is exactly and, and rightly tied to worship. So when he says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him, he could, you could substitute the word, now therefore fear the Lord and worship him. Now, the reason why we might get caught up on that is because when you and I hear the word worship, what do we typically think of? Jesus drumming a guitar and Tim hitting drums and us singing. That's a really small, limited picture of worship. Worship instead is, like it's the wholehearted devotion and commitment to something. It is the pouring back to something. Now, I say something because right worship pours all of that, it gives all of that commitment, all of that devotion, all of that pouring back to the Lord. But we are like we are. We are geared as people. We are geared to respond and worship something. Before most services in the fall, uh, if you're here on time, you can hear uh, several of us giving uh, each other a hard time about our college football teams or whatever. Now, there's a fun little cautionary tale in there. How quickly can our fandom turn to worship, or well, that that receives our devotion, that receives our commitment, that receives like our attention, that receives—that's what we think about when we we wake up, when we go down to sleep. Will we make the playoff? Oh my goodness! Oh, we didn't make the playoff. Will we be better next year? How could we possibly be better next year? Well, we're gonna get a new coach. His new coach can be better than the last coach. That's just one aspect. And what is drawn out of this in Joshua chapter 24 is first of all there's a recognition that we are worshipers. We're made to worship, but it is this there's this drawn to a a a conclusion of who will you serve? In verses 14 and 15 is therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away, right? There's a there's a if I'm choosing to worship and serve the Lord, I'm choosing to put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and served, and again, in here it is, and serve the Lord. But then he says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, if it's wrong for you, you don't feel like you can worship the Lord, then choose today who you will serve. Because you're going to serve something. He says, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river. In other words, he goes, well, decide today whether you're going to go all the way back to Abraham's life of worship before the Lord called him. Or, whether it's the the, uh, the, God of the, the gods of the Amorites in whose, hand, in whose land you dwell. It's like, look at your life. Look at what the Lord has done for you now. Now put it in the balance and say, who will you serve? And then Joshua lays the one that's probably, that very well could be on your wall. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua says, Do you decide, it's, but this is the decision that is laid before you today. This is what God has faithfully done for you, none of which you have done for yourself. Therefore, choose today, decide today who you will serve. I think as, as Western Americans, we, we really kind of like, um, I don't know, just go on a limb and say we like the Alamo. Everybody, who likes the Alamo? Like, hey, that Alamo is a good thing. Great picture of, like, American, just, like, stick it to them. Uh, no? You're like, we, we don't like the idea of being massacred. Okay, anyway, I'll roll it back just a little bit. When the, the time was drawing near at the Alamo, the guy in charge, William Travis, it's, uh, is even, uh, from what I understand, haven't been there, sounds like a cool place to go, at the Alamo. If you look in the ground, as you go uh, on the ground, they have a line that is still there today, that is reminding the people that when they're in the Alamo, Santa Ana, the general of the Mexican army, uh, gave them terms and said, you can surrender or we aren't going to, like, if you don't surrender, nobody will be given mercy. And William Travis took his sword and put a line in the sand and said, make a decision. You want to stay or do you want to go? And all but one of the men that were in the Alamo decided to stay. It, get that mental picture in your mind. This is kind of what Joshua is saying to them. Like the, the line is in the sand. Choose who you are going to serve. There's, you can't straddle the line. There's, there's no straddling the line between worshiping the Lord and worshiping something else. Like, there, there's no neutral territory. So he is who will you serve? He had just relayed to them their history. He says, but for me in my house, this is who we are going to serve. Now, another quick note on this really quickly. Notice that the chapter doesn't end there. It doesn't end with, Joshua has decided that he's going to serve the Lord, so we're all grandfathered in through Joshua. And again, this this kind of brings us back to maybe a view of church or a view of our relationship with the Lord. It is not enough for you this morning to say, well, my pastor serves the Lord and believes and teaches the Bible, so... That's what I believe. It is not enough for you to say, well, my church believes and practices the truth, so that's what I—that—that's okay. My church is doing it. Look, the, like if you want to know what I believe, there, there's my church. That's what my church is doing. If it's disconnected from me. It's not enough to say, well, my parents believe and, and follow the Lord, so I'm good. It's not enough to say my grandparents, they, they really love the Lord, so I think I'm covered under that umbrella. I think I'm good. It's not enough to say, my spouse, my spouse seems really committed to this thing, so I think, therefore, I'm okay. My friends really seem to embrace this Jesus thing, and so I'm good. It's not enough that Joshua, as a representative of the people, says, for me and my house we will serve the Lord. So notice that in our corporate coming together, we are put together of individuals who are collectively saying, we will serve the Lord. We will follow Jesus in faith and respond in obedience to his word. So then the people answer in verses 16 through 24. They respond three times. They reiterate, we will serve the Lord. They even say, how could we? How could we possibly forsake the Lord to serve other gods? Because it's they, and they repeat back their history. It's the Lord who's done all these things for us. He's the one who brought us out of Egypt. He's the one who brought us out of the house of slavery. He's the one who did great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. He's the one who drove out all the peoples. He's the one who drove out the Amorites before him. Okay, so we will serve the Lord. And it's kind of you would not expect in verse 19 Joshua to give the answer that he does. You would think right after verse 18, twice they say we will serve the Lord. You would expect Joshua to say, fantastic, let's get to work. Instead, he looks at them and he says, or I'm assuming he looks at them, not just at the sky, but he says to them, you can't. This is too big of a thing for you. You're not able to. Because God is holy, because he's jealous, because he won't allow you to serve other gods if you decide to follow him. Because if you decide to follow him and then turn around and forsake him, he says he'll devour you and consume you after he has done good to you. I don't think what Joshua is doing is trying to discourage the people from serving, but what he is trying to reiterate to them is they need to understand the God that they are saying, we will serve him. In the same way that Jesus, oftentimes in the New Testament, when people want to follow him, he says things that he'll they wanted to follow you. Why did you say something harsh? That, why, did you, why did you say something difficult to them if they wanted to follow you? If you go to Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33, we'll, we'll finish here in just a moment. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. There's great crowds following Jesus. And you just, like, again, you just you throw this in the context of like modern ministry. The goal of many is what? Great crowds. I guess that's a sign. Like, hey, great crowds. Things are going great. And Jesus, as great crowds are following him, he turns to them and he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Isn't that an easy word for people to hear? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We thought it was really cool to follow you. You have to what now? Unless we hate our family, we can't follow you. And he goes on to say, "Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't pick up their instrument of capital punishment and follow me, taking upon themselves the death penalty on their life, because that's where Jesus is headed." He says, "Unless you're willing to follow me to the extremes, you can't be my disciple." In the same way, when he says, "If anyone comes to me doesn't hate his own father and mother," you go, "Does he really teaching that you should hate your family?" No, but what he is teaching us is that to the like in the when we follow Jesus in heart filled complete dependence, there will be times where that will bring us to a place of odds with our family, and in those moments we will have to decide: we will serve the Lord, or man that hurts. I'm going to stick with family, and when you decide to stick with the Lord, what that feels like to your family is, this person hates me. But notice like at the very beginning, when great crowds are following, before they are are full-fledged disciples of Jesus, they're just following him, he lays out the expectation. This isn't easy. Know what you're getting yourself into. In the same way Joshua says, hey, Do you realize what you're committing to? It's not just lip service to say, yeah, we'll also serve the Lord. He said, have you really considered what it means to serve him? Have you really considered what heart, like complete devotion and commitment to the Lord looks like? Have you counted the cost of following him? And it goes back a little bit to what we talked about last week. Following Jesus is not a passive activity. It is a life of actively following him. Worshiping and serving Jesus doesn't just happen passively through us. It is an active life of pursuing him and saying no to other options constantly. What's incredible about Joshua 24 is it does at least give us a little bit of a picture. When the people commit themselves to this, there's there's, there's, a, there's a sliver, a glimmer of awesomeness in the end of Joshua, in verse 31. So it says, right before this, Joshua dies. And then it says in verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. And it's an incredible picture. They committed themselves and then they did it for a generation. And then when you go into the book of Judges, you realize after that generation passes away, the next generation forgets. So one of the questions that we would ask is are we also like, are we, if we are committing ourselves and we're saying, as for me and my house, this is what we'll do, are we are we passing it on to somebody else? Or are we sitting on and saying, Well, I serve the Lord. Me and my house, we serve the Lord. What about the next generation? In our serving and worship of the Lord, is it it contagious? Is it evangelistic? Is it sharing with other people? So very simply, I I would just finish with this one statement slash question. Choose your serve. Choose your serve. You are built to worship and serve who are you worshiping and serving? Then just to finish it with a quote, when you think about who am I serving? Jim Elliott, missionary that died at 28, he and and four others seeking to take the gospel uh, to an unreached people in Ecuador, uh, all five of them killed by the very people they were trying to reach. Before he had died, though, at the age of 28, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In our serve, in our worship, we might be trying to accumulate and amass things that ultimately we won't hold on to on the other side of the grave. But when we serve the Lord, the hope that he gives is not just for this life, It's for the life to come. Are you serving things and are you trying to accumulate things that won't last? Or are you investing your life in something that can never be shaken, it's imperishable, undefiled, held in heaven for you? That's the living hope that we sang about. It's the living hope that Peter writes about in 1 Peter. Because of Jesus, there's a living hope held undefiled, unblemished, unfading, and it's guarded in heaven for you. Maybe this morning, you go know, very honestly. No, my life has not been spent in response to faith in Jesus. Then again, I simply say, choose your serve today. If you hear His voice in the Book of Hebrews, it says, "Don't harden your hearts like they did back in the Old Testament, but respond to Him in faith." You go. Know, what does that look like? What does it look like to respond to Jesus in faith? That seems like a very out there, big concept. One of the things that I would encourage you, because we we talked about it last week, is that, that choosing to follow Jesus is not just saying a prayer and then going, I said a prayer, I'm good for life. But responding to Jesus in faith is saying, both with our mind, our hearts, and our actions, that we are no longer our own, but we are following him in faith. It's an active turning away from the things I have been serving and choosing to follow Jesus. Now there's words that could go along with that and it very well likely would would come out in a prayer that very simply could be something like, Jesus, I have been living my life for myself and that has brought me to a place of being separated from you. But I realize that because of Jesus, you died for me and made a way for me to be right with you. So help me to turn away from my sin and help me to follow you in faith. Thank you for dying for me. Like, that, that might be if you were to put words to it. But there's no magic words to responding to Jesus with the things that we pray. But then it is followed with a lifetime of following. But in the same way that as Jesus said it in, in Luke chapter 14, count the cost before you. It's not a flippant. Yeah, that seems like a good thing to do for the moment. Lay it out before you. Count the cost. Will I follow him, not just for a day or two, do I want to follow him for the rest of my life? And then if you would, this morning though, you might say, well, I've, I've already had a relationship with Jesus for a long time. I would encourage you just like Joshua reminded the Israelites. Examine God's history in your life. Be reminded of all that God has faithfully done for you. And it's still the ongoing decision of the person who follows Jesus is, who am I going to serve? That question doesn't go away. It's not a one-time question. So again, choose your serve. You might, you might have said, oh, I follow Jesus, but like, wow, I'm, I'm following something else at the moment. Choose your serve. Not just in a vacuum, but look at, the, look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at all of the ways that he's been faithful. And decide today whether or not you will follow him, serve him, and worship him.